This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... For the first time, there's a roundtable on water security, so this is extremely important. There's also a roundtable on adaptation and agriculture and so forth. That's Rania Al-Mashat, Egypt's Minister of International Cooperation, on specific discussions to tackle key issues at the upcoming UN Climate Change Conference. Details coming up also. IMF warns that storm clouds are looming over the global economy. Also, IMF says Sub-Saharan Africa faces its most challenging environment in years and Nigerian university lecturers end a long strike. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. Communities across Nigeria have been hit by floods in recent weeks. Hundreds of lives have been lost and families have been displaced. Mike Mbonye reports from Lagos. Nigeria's National Emergency Management Agency says floods have affected 29 of the country's 36 states. Mustafa Habib Ahmed, the agency's director general, told an emergency technical meeting that heavy flooding has displaced more than 100,000 people, cost more than 300 lives, and injured more than 500 people. He says the displaced are living in temporary shelters such as schools and public buildings or are staying with friends. Ahmed says the release of excess water from Lagdo Dam Reservoir in Cameroon caused much of the flooding. The water enters Nigeria through the River Benue and its tributaries. He also says the released water complicates the situation as Nigeria's inland reservoirs at Kainji Jeba and Shiroro are expected to overflow in the next few weeks. Bayasa State in the Niger Delta region is one of the flood areas. Iselema Barambiri is the Commissioner of Environment in Bayasa State. He is also the Chair of the State's Tax Force on Floods Mitigation and Management. The tax force has gone into the local government areas. Specifically, six local governments out of the eight local governments are washed it. Local governments of Kirimo, Sagbama, Kolokumo, Pukukuma, Yinegua, Ogwea, Satan, and Jo. Then uh, uh, that of uh, Nebe and Brass are partially hit by the flood. Far over 300 communities are affected. Houses are lost. Government structures, police stations have been sacked. People have been sacked. We have collected those informations and are reported to government. Barambiri says the task force is working to relocate affected people to higher ground and supplying critical needs such as medicines and mosquito nets. Alagua Morris is the program manager and head of the Environmental Rights Action Resource Center in Yenagua, Bayesa State. Maurice says he too is a victim of the flooding. While we have advocated for flood victims over the years, we never knew that it will come to us today. 
Last night, I slept on the table in the office because my resident was visited with heavy flood. The office, the same thing, our livestock and all of that, the whole estate was flooded. As we speak, people are relocating and it is very, very distressful. We are not happy. As a matter of fact, we want to call on the federal government to go back to the dam they were constructing when Cameroon started their Lado Dam to ensure that that serves as a buffer and stop suffering the people of Nigeria, stop suffering the people of uh, the Niger Delta. There is food security issues if this is, this is going to continue. The National Emergency Management Agency says it is monitoring the flood situation and has advised state governments to evacuate flood victims to higher ground with food, portable water, and hygiene. This is Mike Mbonye for VOA News in Lagos. And in more news from Nigeria, university teachers in the country have suspended an eight-month strike after authorities agreed to invest $1 billion to improve pay and working conditions. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja, Nigeria. The Academic Staff Union of Universities in Nigeria announced the suspension in a statement early Friday after an overnight National Executive Council meeting and directed its members to resume their services immediately. The lecturers' union said the decision followed weeks of intense negotiations with Nigerian authorities and a court order to suspend the strike. University lecturers walked away from classes February 14th to protest paid disputes. The union also said Nigerian authorities had reneged on an earlier promise to invest about $3 billion into public schools. But last week, Nigerian President Mohamed Buhari presented a national budget for 2023 and earmarked about $690 million for universities and $390 million for polytechnics and colleges of education. Authorities also resolved to pay lecturers for the months they were away from class. Peter Adamu is a member of the ASU Executive Council. He said authorities have not completely met the union's demands, but there is progress. We have shifted ground. Government also have done things. We have arrived at this middle ground. So we are hopeful that both sides will keep this agreement. And as you know, the union have kept their own side of the agreement. So we are hoping. The government will also fulfill their own part of the argument. Protests over pay, welfare, and crumbling facilities by teachers' unions have been common in Nigeria's education system for decades and sometimes last for many months. A previous strike in 2020 in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic lasted for nine months, the longest in Nigeria's history. Asu says negotiations will continue as the schools open many will be hoping issues between unions and the government can be resolved for good. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Please note as the host of the 2022 United Nations Climate Change Conference next month, Egypt aims to push developed economies to meet promises on climate aid for smaller nations. VOA senior analyst Mohamed El-Shanawi has more. Following another year of record-breaking temperatures and extreme weather disasters, developed countries are being pushed 
to deliver their promised $100 billion a year to help developing countries deal with climate change. Rania Al-Mashat is the Egyptian Minister of International Cooperation. She says, as the President of the United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP27, Egypt has a new vision to achieve that goal. This COP, which is coming up next month in Sharm el-Sheikh, one of the key points is climate and development come hand in hand. And one of our key messages for COP is to go from pledges to implementation. So countries that are ready with projects that are able to create the jobs, that are able to address the green transition or the climate action, and at the same time have a development aspect in nature, all of these are going to be extremely good options for this concessional finance to make their way there. COP27 is considered to be an African climate conference as it is taking place on one of the continents most affected by climate change. She says 80% of climate funds go to mitigation efforts, reducing carbon emissions and boosting clean energy. Only 20% goes to adaptation efforts to boost agriculture and food production systems. Al-Mashat expects there will be a shift toward more adaptation efforts as the world recognizes the importance of food security and agriculture not just for the developing countries but for all countries. The third main item at COP27 conference will be how to help people recover from climate disasters. Those can range from crops lost to drought to homes destroyed in floods to the loss of some small island states immersed by rising seas. Al-Mashad said in previous climate conferences, the United States and European Union pushed back against requests for additional financing to cover loss and damage. She says this year, Egypt is prepared to demand the establishment of a financing facility. She says this year's conference will push world leaders on issues key to Africa. There are several initiatives that the Egyptian presidency is putting together and on the first two days of the high-level leaders meeting, for the first time there's a roundtable on water security, so this is extremely important. There's also a roundtable on adaptation and agriculture and so forth. So again, trying to push in some of the topics which really affect the emerging economies. So this is an opportunity we're trying to use to, to push these messages. The fourth agenda point for COP27 is increasing ambition. In other words, expanding on existing commitments on climate. Al-Mashad says it is expected that at Sharm el-Sheikh, countries will make new pledges to reduce their emissions and work to constrain rising global temperatures. Mohamed Shinawi, VOA News, Washington. In Burkina Faso today, political parties, social and religious groups and representatives of the security forces launched talks to chart the country's future. The meeting starts two weeks after Army Captain Ibrahim Traore forced out Lieutenant Colonel Paul Henry Sandoga Damiba, who had led a coup in January, ousting President Rock Mark Christian Kabore. For more on the gathering, the head of VOA's Bambara service, Bagasikura, spoke to me by phone earlier today. 
Hi, good to talk to you. So, Bagasi, ECOWAS is also struggling to facilitate a return to constitutional order in Burkina Faso. What are the talks this weekend by more than 300 delegates going to focus on? Uh, Two things uh, that we will be discussing all day today and probably tomorrow morning. The new charter of uh, transition, uh, which will... Be, uh, be, will serve as the law of the transitional period until July 2024. And then at the end of that, they will elect or they will choose somebody who will lead the transition. I know at the beginning, the new uh, strongman, Ibrahim Traore, said that the new leader could be civilian or military. But what we have seen in the last few days is that there have been you know, uprising, uprising all over the country in different streets, asking him to keep, to stay in power, to to put on. So it will be a surprise if they design, if they choose somebody else to lead the country. Uh, Bagasi, the country, uh, as you know, is struggling with a violent insurgency linked to Al-Qaeda and Islamic State. That seems to be the root cause of the country's problem. The violence has killed thousands and displaced millions. In fact, insecurity because of the violence has spurred two coup d'etats in Burkina Faso. So don't you think this situation is paramount and has to be rectified first? Yes, exactly. That's why, uh, that's what the military have said two weeks ago when they did this coup. They said that the previous one uh, that was in place since uh, January 24 did, did deviate from the initial goal of uh, restoring the uh, state authority all over the territory of Burkina Faso. As we are speaking, more than 40% of the country is out of control of the government. So you have thousands of school closed. You have close to 2 million people who are displaced. So uh, this new leader, Captain Traore, said that that will be their focus. Uh, so the meeting today and tomorrow are some kind of uh, preliminaries, and we hope that after these political talks, they will go back to the fight against terrorism and hopefully be able to bring people back to the original region. And finally, Bagasi, news reports say Ibrahim Traore is likely to be named head of Burkina Faso's interim government. Will he or will he not? Yes, I think he will, because as we see, people who are demonstrating uh, by the thousands, they are being organized. And what is interesting to mention is also we have thousands of Russian flags all over the place asking him to... Um, you know, severe tie with France and have partnership with Russia. Thank you. Bagasi Kura, head of VOA's Babara Service, thank you for your input. The French news agency AFP says at least 11 people were killed and over 50 injured when a bus hit an explosive device yesterday in central Mali. A security source says the blast attributed to Islamist insurgents occurred on the road between Bandigara and Gundaka in the Mopti region. In Benin, the AFP says security forces foiled eight gunmen suspected of operating from Burkina Faso and Niger. Benin's military says terrorists attempted to infiltrate 
the northwestern town of Materi, for an attack Wednesday. Authorities say the extremists were ambushed in a security setup and detonated an explosive device they were about to install. They then fought with armed forces in the area and authorities retrieved what they say was important equipment. Both Mali and Benin struggle with criminal gangs, smugglers and militant Islamic extremists linked to the Islamic State group and Al-Qaeda. At the World Bank and IMF meetings in Washington, D.C. this week, participants have warned that storm clouds are looming over the global economy. I spoke with Professor Lemma Weldesen, but currently the William E. Mayer Chair Professor of Finance at the University of Maryland College Park and who served from 2013 to 2018 as the Executive Director and CEO of African Economic Research Consortium, the largest and oldest economic research and training network in Africa. I first asked him to familiarize us with the annual IMF World Bank meetings, their agenda, and the participants. Let me begin by saying that these two institutions, the World Bank and the IMF, came into existence some 78 years ago, almost 80 years now, in 1944. This was in the wake of shattered post-war economy. And uh, by the way, it would be interesting that there are only 43 countries represented. So uh, now the number has gone up to close to 190 countries. So this purpose of this meeting is to assemble uh, policy decision makers to actually engage in, in the state of the world economy, uh, discuss concerns. It includes uh, ministers of finance, central bank governors, private sectors, and NGOs, and, uh, and then also this also a meeting of the board of governors that actually uh, governs these institutions. This meeting has been going on for a week now, um, and the IMF is saying that storm clouds are looming over the global economy, persistent inf- inflation, a slowdown in China, ongoing stresses from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, the pandemic. So based on this assessment, what is your viewpoint on the global economic slowdown? It's interesting that you asked this question. Remember, I mentioned this 1944 and why those guys actually met and created these institutions. That was in the wake of a huge crisis. I'm worried that if this crisis that you mentioned, namely uh, COVID, uh, inflation, Ukraine, food crisis, uh, fuel, if this thing is not managed uh, properly and contained, there is a possibility of this entire economy devolving into something similar to 1944. So that's my, that's my biggest worry. And I'm hoping that, of course, it will not happen. How will this economic slowdown affect Africa? The challenges that are facing the U.S. and other economies are also challenges facing uh, Africa. One is a food and fuel crisis exacerbated by the Ukraine crisis. And then uh, I mentioned earlier that... Uh, the U.S. is engaged in very tight financial policy in terms of managing interest rates to contain inflation. And this has an immediate impact on cost of borrowing. And already we have over 20 
uh, African countries at the risk of distress or default in terms of debt. So that that's going to have an impact. And then, of course, we should also say that uh, you know the Ukraine crisis has created food crisis. So so it's a big issue of food insecurity in Africa. So the effect is uh, phenomenal. And the question is now, um, what can be done? What can African governments do to alleviate this problem? So I think that I think what I would like to do in terms of responding to this question is the role of international and global partners. And then what African could do on their own. And I wanted to start from actually the latter because COVID-19 has become an awakening for awakening for African countries to get their house in order. There are many low-hanging foods. For instance, there is a largest trade area agreement in Africa now. And that is a very welcome news because markets in Africa are fragmented, they are low scale, especially when it's got tech forms of finance and the stock exchanges. So the idea of enhancing intra-trade and market integration is, is very welcome news. And then the other is, the, the other awakening is the need for digital transformation because it, we need capacity, uh, we need enhanced capacity, given that uh, markets are becoming very sophisticated and also enabling uh, the youth, which is actually increasingly becoming an engine, engine of entrepreneurship, innovation. But there are issues of capacity and that's where uh, partners like G20 uh, and China and the U.S. And I know that now there's going to be a summit of Biden and African heads of state in, in, in D.C. And some of these issues are going to come. So, so in addition, it's not just money. It's really the idea of providing technical assistance in the area of uh, digital transformation is, is very important. That was Professor Lemawal Desambat, currently the William E. Mayer Chair Professor of Finance at the University of Maryland College Park, speaking with me. Ahead in the World Food Day commemorations, Uganda's government is distributing fast-maturing seeds to people in Karamoja, a region hit hard by famine and starvation in recent years. Reporter Mugume Davis Rawakaringi has more from Kampala, Uganda. The move to distribute early maturing plants in the northeastern Karamoja region was announced this week by Agriculture Minister Bino Fred Chakulaga. Chakulaga said the government is also helping communities with relief food. But he said handouts are not sustainable and it's important for people to be encouraged to produce their own foods. Particularly the uh, green gram and the cowpeas, you can also eat the vegetable, the, 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 the leaves. Once the leaves are there, you can pick them and boil them or fry them and eat them. So you can even start harvesting before the 58 days. More than 500,000 people in the Karamoja region face critical food insecurity according to aid agencies and government statistics. UNICEF says more than the 6,000 children between 6 and 59 months are acutely malnourished in the area. The World Food Program reported that at least 2,465 people Mostly elderly and children died of starvation in the region by July. Chakraga says the government, through projects like the newly launched Past Development Model, will help families escape poverty and be able to have nutritious, safe, and sustainable food supplies. Mary Gino is the local council chairman of Kabong District, one of the hard-hit areas in Karamoja. 
He says seed distribution alone is not enough. For about a month now, most of the past in the region have not received any rains. So the likelihood of these seeds being planted is remote and may not attain uh, its purpose of improving uh, food, its food security and nutrition in the sub-region. Mary says the government should build dams and collect rainwater whenever it rains. He also says there should be an introduction of mechanized farming like tractors for better yields. Above all, he says the government has to fight the chronic vice of cattle raiding and ensure sustainable peace and stability. So that the people can return to fertile farmlands where they originally used to cultivate. Currently, most of the people, because of insecurity, have run away from these fertile areas and are in centers where they cannot produce enough food. Both Chakulaga and Merigino agree they have to work together to sensitize citizens to change their mindset and engage in farming. For VOA News, I am Mugume, Davis Rwakarindini Kampala, Uganda. And that wraps up this edition of African News Today.